0: Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. We have with us today Philip Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He's the author of numerous works on economic history, taxation, inequality, and education policy, and, and and has been writing extensively about COVID. Phil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's, let's go back to March. One of the things we've been trying to do is to go back to what we thought when, you know, and, and how right. we're talking about that with information we had at that point. So even, even if it was before March, when were you started to be like, huh, this is happening and what, what, what are we going to do about it? What was your sort of awakening moment on, on COVID?
1: Yeah, i see say the first sign that I noticed anything about it um, really coming into kind of a serious direction uh, the very end of February, the New York Times really started ramping up its uh, its coverage of, of COVID. And I noticed it at the time. I wasn't uh, expecting you know, anything near like what we had at the moment uh, or the lockdowns or anything that followed, but I noticed that suddenly their, their attention had shifted uh, pretty intensely to that subject. And then some of it was actually sounding kind of a, a fairly alarmist direction. So this is probably around February 27th, 28th, thereabouts. Uh, and then over the next two weeks, I, I'd say the aha moment when I knew this was serious, when I knew that uh, we should kind of buckle in for a, a, a very long policy response was actually, I think it was on March 12th. And that was the day, not the government did anything. It was the day that the NBA canceled
0: the remainder of its season yeah it, it's it's incredible that, that again right uh, individuals and 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 reacted sometimes faster and start internalizing this a little bit quicker than than, than governments right Well, exactly you know, government's the lagging indicator here right right so so the mBA does it, and what do you start looking at in terms of data or models or or what caught your attention in terms of the information available for for that decision
1: yeah so um we saw on March sixteenth was the big day that uh, major decisions were made both in the United States and the u k and that was the day that the imperial college neil ferguson model came out and you know everyone remembers that that's the one that predicted 2.2 million deaths in the u.s uh 500 in the uk and had all these i'm
0: sorry you do remember that but I actually i can't remember now from the top of my head by when they predicted 2.2 million deaths in the u.s
1: so it was um it was a little bit unclear in the model they were claiming uh, I think one version of it stated by the end of the year, but then he also gave some public comments to reporters that, that ended, indicated slightly different timeframes, but I think the assumption has generally been by, by the end of 2020.
0: Okay. okay. And, and yeah, so, the, so that was the, the, the model that somehow changed course on the, the UK response, right? The UK seemed yeah. to be on the path that Sweden had decided to, to follow. And that model came in and and changed, not only changed what the UK did, but I think it was a very influential in our decision across the states here.
1: Right, right. right. Yeah, Yeah. Then we have quotes from Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burke saying that they they had just received the new model from the UK and it was predicting this disastrous scenario here. So uh, it, it ends up being a major thing that shifts them as well as the UK government that Imperial College is actually advising.
0: So, so take that at face value. Um, you know, take that model prediction as perhaps assume that that was the best science we had at the time. Yeah. How would you take that information and and the, and the, and think about what to do and think about the options on the table, right? And I think the main options on the table at that point in time were like, well, we can try to do this the way Sweden is doing, or we okay. can try to do this the way Northern literally had done, or what we decided to experiment and, and locking down. So. What should we be looking at? Even taking that as face value, that the 2.2 million deaths prediction, how yeah. do we go about making the decision? Well,
1: my my first reaction to this, and this uh, is probably within the days after the Imperial College model came out, is uh, we had to look at the track record of this group, uh, this group of scientists, because uh, they used an older model that was from the influenza epidemics in the, in the mid-2000s uh, when they adapted it over to COVID. Uh, and they state this outright they said we're taking our old flu model because this is the closest thing that they thought they had to covid uh, so my next question is let's look how that flu model performed in 2005 and in 2009 when these were the the avion and swine flu years uh, that we did have a serious response to but um, we can also evaluate against the way that the model performed in action and it turns out, if you go dig up the articles, they were predicting hundreds of thousands of deaths with each of these pandemics, and it ends up being just a tiny fraction of that. So that immediately tells me that uh, that maybe we shouldn't put as much stock in this specific model that um, governments actually did. And then the second question that we need to ask is, uh, you know, these models are based on inputs. And back in March, uh, even till very recently, we didn't have much in the way of, of reliable data on the nature of this new disease. Uh, we knew that it was deadly, we knew that it spread very clearly in nursing homes because uh, you know, in Washington state, the first outbreak in the US was in nursing homes. We knew out of Italy that elderly populations were especially vulnerable and that had been where the majority of the deaths had occurred uh, by far in Italy. Uh, but we didn't know the uh, the infection fatality rate. Right? We still don't have a, a clear uh, piece of evidence about that. And then testing was also so bad. I mean, it was just kind of like a a crapshoot. You didn't really know what was going on. Uh, and yet, all of these things are are necessary to uh, to kind of calibrate the parameters of the type of modeling that they uh, employed there. And that raises a huge red flag for me. Um, that's that's kind of science uh, flying uh, blind. Uh, into the wind and not really knowing what's going to happen and yet pretending as if you have almost like this pretense of knowledge that uh, you can project not only weeks out but years out uh, the epidemiological pattern of this disease and all using a model that hasn't performed all that well in the past.
0: Right but but so one would try to justify what we did by looking at that and say, "Okay, we don't know enough. There's lots of unknowns here. We don't have enough testing. We don't have enough information." But under a combination of parameters and a combination of assumptions, we're facing 2.2 million deaths. Right. right so, so but there's something else that was missing uh, uh, in in that discussion uh, when when deciding, let's say, to, to and that, that's the, the the trade-off calculation, right? So, exactly. all right, we can we can sit here and and let this ride and. Yeah, maybe we're going to kill two point two million people, and and or we can can do something that is extremely um, intrusive, extremely right. just like a, um, unpredictable in its nature and what was going to do and what's going to generate. So so, it, as as the lockdown started rolling in, what, what were the things that you were thinking? I mean, there's the obvious disruption. On, okay, well, the job market is going to sure, suffer, sure. unemployment is going to go. But how were you thinking about that side, the the, the trade offs that we're starting to face?
1: Well, uh, the immediate trade offs that come to mind is we know from past economic recessions and depressions, there's an extensive literature on this, that it actually has clear effects in both increases in substance abuse, increases in depression, which leads to suicide, um, all sorts of ill health effects associated with economic downturns. We know this from 2008 when when the last major recession happened, suicide uh, spiked, alcoholism went up, substance abuse went up. And this is a just a, a natural response that people have when, when there are massive job losses and uh, poor prospects for the future. Uh, so we can reliably predict that something like that is going to happen. And, and, and guess what? Uh, it has started to play out that way. Uh, we know from some States that were not hot spots of COVID they were even reporting suicide rates that are, uh, are matching or exceeding what uh, what their localized COVID rate happened to be. Uh, so that kind of a downturn is immediately evident as, as something that has to be as part of the trade-off. Then you start uh, looking at secondary and, uh, and third-order effects that, that are taking place in response to this policy. So we, we lock down society in response to, uh, to covid but that also included the cancellation of what were called elective procedures in many hospitals. Uh, it shut down the remainder of the medical industry so it could reorient and focus toward COVID so we wouldn't lose our hospital capacity for uh, uh, COVID mitigation. But what does that mean? It's uh, It could be anything from someone who is in an early stage of cancer now has to delay treatment for several months, and that could have... S- serious severe effects on their their expected lifespan uh, not not maybe this year but many years from now uh, it could be anything from elective surgeries that uh, pertain very closely to the quality of life so elective surgery is not uh, like you put it it's not like getting a plastic surgeon to fix your nose or something uh, it could be a hip replacement it could be a a, a joint repair it could be something that treats uh, a medical problem that's not severe now but when you get into old age is going to very very clearly uh, rack up and cause you problems if you don't treat it now. And what that implies is that some of the toll of, uh, of this is going to not be fully felt until 10, 20, 30 years from now for many people. Uh, they're going to find uh, diminished quality of life and maybe even lifespan itself because of treatments that were delayed uh, in response to the lockdowns. So you start thinking about all these different uh, conditions that come about, and uh, it, it's suddenly a very severe aggregating problem that's not at all considered in the models. It's not This isn't part of the, the, the calculations that uh, uh, someone like Imperial College is making. Uh, this is the cost side of a, uh, a decision that's almost occurring in a vacuum.
0: Yeah, and, and, and so you to, adding those things up is very difficult, of course, but, but uh, uh, at the same time, I think we treated the two sides in very different ways, right? One mm-hmm. side being okay, we have a lot of uncertainty, but let's take the two point two as face value, and the other side, let's not even talk about it. Let's not even debate that. Let's right. not even let's right. not even, you know try to add up the things that we're going to do. And, and uh, one of the things that you you, you write a lot from a, from a, um, I want to say like economic freedom point of view. Like in a lot of things you write, and um, the one thing that bothered me, and 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 I want to take your See your take on it is that the notion that governments start coming in and say we're going to decide what's essential what's not essential right uh and the sort of uh, our inability to understand how you know the economic engine connects and how things are connected to to define what's essential and non-essential it, it's scary um yeah. and, and and you know the implications of that is it's just incredible and and surprises me actually that we didn't suffer more yeah. of, a, of a disruption but so, yeah, I
1: mean, that, and when you start defining things as essential versus non-essential, that's a political decision. That is the governor or the mayor of some uh, state or city uh, coming in and saying, we know that this type of business is necessary, but these other types of business are not. And, and we found this in the United States. Uh, some things that were legal in Ohio were illegal just across the border in Michigan. So the Michigan governor, governor uh, deemed uh, I think gardening supplies non-essential. Uh, so they had to rope off that section of the store, uh, whereas across, just across the border, you could drive five minutes up the road if you live near the border. Uh, you can be in Ohio, and suddenly uh, it's a very different uh, situation because they made it on political lines. Uh, we saw this internationally as well. There was a, um, uh, a kind of a quirky story of a uh, uh, a store that sits on the border between the Netherlands and Belgium. And the half of the store that was on the Belgium side was all roped off to only essential items, whereas the half of the store on the on the Netherlands side was uh, uh, basically open, uh, you know, with social distancing and all the usual uh, precautions in place. But uh, you could sell things in one half of the store and not the other half of the store. And you look at this on his face, it's just kind of absurd. Uh, so I started looking a bit into some of the history of uh, where do we get this definition of essential versus non-essential because it is putting it in the hands of the politicians rather than any scientific basis. And if we go back to previous pandemics where they've adopted uh, uh, you know policies to try to curtail business hours, uh, so the famous one being the Spanish flu in 1917 there was not an essential versus non-essential distinction that was made. The measure that they used there was, uh, and we find this in city by city by city, they keep going back to it, uh, uh, whether a uh, store or facility or restaurant or public place was congested. So they were con- they were concerned about the number of people, not what the, uh, the service or product being sold happened to be, uh, which I think, e- e- even though that's not a, a perfect response, it's a better basis to, to actually go by. You want to uh, focus on the transmissibility of the disease, not whether people are choosing to buy gardening supplies
0: or food or toilet paper or whatever it happens to be. Right, right. Shutting down the dog groomer seems to be like a really bad idea, right? Given, yeah. yeah. <laughs> one person interacting with one dog, that, that's, that's yeah. not a that's not super clever yeah we, we we tried to spend some time thinking here about about measuring uh, the susceptibility of different activities and try to uh, mm-hmm. look at a trade-off between that activity employment and GDP and and provide that information to some local governments here but again there was no appetite for that there was this sort of like dichotomy either okay let's say either open or or, or close mm-hmm, yeah. and the, the, the use of these emergent emergency powers to say shelter in place stay home somehow was was seen mm-hmm. as the 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 I want to say the um, what's the word I'm lacking the word here the sort of empathetic the 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 right like thing to do for for every individual and you wrote a little bit about this as well on like this notion that we chose a, a course of action that, that some people think that reverting now is is hurting the most vulnerable. Right, right. easing the lockdown is going to hurt the most vulnerable. Our our candidate for Senate here in Texas a while ago, Beto O'Rourke, just yesterday, tweeted yesterday about how Texas <laughs> is really hurting the vulnerable by opening the economy, and this is the the reverse of that, right? Yeah, yeah, it's the exact
1: opposite of that. And you got two effects here. Uh, you know, when when they impose the lockdowns, what types of businesses are hurt the most? It's the small businesses. It's the local one shop operations. It's the one shop cafe or restaurant. And a lot of these are, are, are owned by, uh, you know, they're owned by just a single person in the community. They're not a big chain that's nationwide. Meanwhile, Walmart and Target and all these these national chains uh, that do fall under the essential goods exemption because they provide groceries. And I'm not saying that they should be shut down, Any uh, quite the opposite of that. But uh, but they're going to be fine through this. And, in fact, the uh, business is going to probably shift toward them just like it shifted toward Amazon online but the businesses that are going to hurt the most are those that do not have a national political presence, or even a statewide political presence, to uh, to, to kind of mount a uh, an opposition to uh, this politically induced uh, presence to try and and put them in, under lockdown. Then the second thing of that, whenever you enact a lockdown, you are inviting enforcement. You're inviting. Uh, agents of the state, and this is police, it's bureaucrats, it's regulators, whatever it happens to be. Uh, you're giving them a power to come in and say uh, anyone that violated this lockdown uh, is now subject to either fine or arrest or imprison, imprisonment. All the usual things we do when we make something illegal. You have to expect that it's going to be enforced as it usually is by the government. They're going to send the police and regulators out. Uh, well, what do we know about enforcement in general, even separate and apart from COVID? Uh, patterns in police enforcement, patterns in regulatory enforcement tend to overwhelmingly be focused upon those that are least able to defend themselves. People that don't have access to high-dollar attorneys, don't have corporate lobbyists. uh, In other words, the most vulnerable members of society. Uh, Often that means poor people and racial and ethnic minorities. And we know from several weeks of COVID enforcement, and we started to get some data out of uh, New York City on this in particular. They started to release the numbers of uh, how many people they had arrested for violating the lockdown. And then they did the racial breakdown. And it turned out over 80% were either African American or Hispanic. And this is a, a very large, diverse city, but they all happened to be, all the arrests happened to be in, in just basically two racial and ethnic groups. Uh, something is not right there something's uh, very discriminatory there in the way that this is being enforced it's it's almost as if they're going into the poorer neighborhoods and then the minority neighborhoods looking for lockdown violators meanwhile in the in, in the wealthy neighborhood in downtown Ma- Manhattan it's they're kind of looking the other way uh, and this it's, a, it's a, almost a public choice effect because you know that uh, uh, who's going to be able to hire an attorney, who's going to be able to uh, uh, call attention to abusive enforcement, and then who isn't.
0: Um, the at, at, the time, at the same time, the, 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 the most vulnerable, the poor, have more of an incentive to go out and… And 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 not obey the lockdown because the exactly because the marginal benefit age. the marginal benefit of working a day is much higher for them right than than and for a professor sitting at home still working like me where you know yeah. my life so so the the word I like the the what was it um, some a lot of the epidemiologists and some health officials using the word oh this is an inconvenience. Right, right. It might be an inconvenience for me, maybe for you, but for a lot of people, it was not an inconvenience. It was like the structure right. of their livelihoods, right? And, and so that, that that the condescendancy of that word is just like unbelievable.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we, so we saw that all over is the, the, the blue check Twitter mafia, if you want to call them that. Uh, most of these are, are, are people that are academics or they're reporters. They're, they're middle class, upper middle class people who are able to work from home. Uh, they can work from home. But if you worked in the service industry, if you worked in retail, uh, jobs that are, are, are more commonly associated with, uh, you know, uh, minimum wage jobs, and this is your only source of livelihood or income and you can no longer go to work because your business is shut down. Uh, you can't sit there and watch Netflix all day and continue to collect your salary and do a zoom meeting to teach your class. Uh, your livelihood is cut off.
0: So, so, um, but we did it, right? So we did all these mistakes of 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 not really considering lots of different alternatives. Uh, one of the things that I think was very very um, um, uh, not necessarily fair to the public is the fact that the post shifted as well, right? We had oh, much we sure. had right we had this idea that well maybe we're gonna do this for like two weeks to flatten the curve. That was the yeah. the, the term that went viral. Uh, with the idea of flattening the curve, it was not an idea of changing the total number of infections, just like smoothing the path. Uh, slowing the rate of, of infection so that we don't overwhelm capacity. And maybe I think the target in the beginning, people probably hoped that was like, oh, it's going to be a two-week thing. Which is right. you know, right. we'll not that back. big of a deal if it's like an extended you know, holiday two weeks, right? Yeah. Uh, but what were two weeks became three months. Yep. And, and the GoPost started thinking, well, now we just, nothing about flattening the curve is about somehow eradicating the disease. Right, so what right. was the dynamic that you, that you saw that led to this sort of shifting in the goals of the politician here?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's almost like they they sold the bill of goods to start off with it because it was all about flattening the curve. That was the meme circulating around the internet. It was the uh, talking point of Anthony Fauci and all these uh, public health officials. Uh, we're going to do this for a couple of weeks because we need to flatten the curve to preserve our hospitals. And just just as you said, that, that passes by, that deadline passes, and it's, oh, well, we need to extend it from... Uh, April 1st to April 15th, and April 15th to, March, to May 15th, May 15th to June, and so on. So it's been just uh, kicking the uh, the goalpost even further down the line. And even to the point that I was reading an article in the New York Times yesterday uh, where they were trying to compare the European response, the Western European response to uh, the American response. And now all of a sudden the talking point is that Italy and Spain – uh, actually did something right because even though they had a sharper uh, peak and uh, the total number of deaths, they also had a sharper decline. And then they have this overlaid with the chart of the United States that has a milder peak and a milder decline. And I'm sitting here thinking, wait a minute, this looks a lot like the flatten the curve argument that you were using back in March, and now you're saying that this is wrong. It's 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 almost like this, uh, uh, this internal disconnect of where they're out, searching for a justification for the lockdown rather than making the lockdown based on, uh, on sound science
0: itself. Right, right, and, 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 and here you are again, right, because we, we, we're in the middle of June now, and, and places like Texas, where I live, where we are, yeah. uh, that did not have a first wave. So Texas, right. the, the reality is that people are talking about a second wave, we just did not have a very mild number of cases uh, uh, in Texas throughout. Texas still is the state with lowest death per capita of any significant yeah. large state, right? Yeah. And then guess what? Yeah, we we, we move out of a two-month lockdown to say, like, listen, we cannot just hold on the line here. So let's say you don't have enough cases and you keep shut down forever until a vaccine comes up. That's not an option, right? Right, right. that's the not. The governor has been has been, been opening things up and life goes back to normal. If you look at all the mobility data, Texas seems to be back to a normal level of activity. Um, and fair enough, there's some there's the growth in the cases, there's growth in hospitalizations, which right. were to be expected, right? That's exactly. There's no Fighting that, that's just no no, no avoiding that. Uh, right. But you see, again, I think a lot of uh, the same type of rhetoric of like, well, see, that was a mistake to open it up. I was like, well, what was the alternative? I right. see what the alternative right. was. And, right. and the alternative. Across, across the, 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 the similar comparison you see between Europe and the U.S., now you see oh, yeah. between the hard-hit blue states in the Northeast, oh, they did it right. Like, wait a second. <laughs> New York has a 1,000 deaths per million. Texas has 70. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um but anyway so i'm not saying that texas has to get to, to a thousand i think now we learn so much more right so yeah, actually, yeah. let's move to, to that part and we, we did all this and now we're here in june and we learned a lot more about the uncertainty we had in the beginning that might have been uh, uh uncomfortable and made politicians sort of you know uh, yeah. panic and, and opt for for a lockdown type strategy what do we know now how do you see what we know now and what we're going to go be doing moving forward well, so the biggest point of data
1: that's been added into our, our mix, or I guess more so confirmed, because we had early signs of it, was just how disproportionately this disease affects the elderly. And it, it's even to the point, so it's a very severe risk among the elderly. Uh, it's a very mild risk among younger people and healthier people. Uh, and of, of the younger people that have died from it, uh, there's overwhelming evidence that there are people with other medical conditions that uh, exacerbated, it, which is tragic and horrible in its own right. I don't want to downplay that. But uh, we, we very clearly know that this is a disease that disproportionately affects the elderly. Uh, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that, uh, that maybe we need to consider different approaches to our policy responses that were not there back in March. Uh, the foremost among those being the nursing home issue. Uh, So I've done a little bit of data work. Uh, Unfortunately, the the states are not uh, very good at keeping these records. But uh, Massachusetts, which is uh, where I live, uh, has, yeah, they've actually have really robust daily data on, on COVID cases and the fatalities that come out of those. And they started back in early April, they started tracking the daily deaths in nursing homes as opposed to the general population. And they discovered something really quick early on. So back in April, it was about 50% of all deaths in, uh, of COVID in Massachusetts were in nursing homes. Nursing homes that accounted for, I think there was a population of about 50,000 people in a state of, of 7 million. So it's a tiny portion of the population is accounting for half of all COVID deaths. And that number's increased. It's, a, it's now hovering around 63 64% of uh, COVID deaths in Massachusetts are from nursing homes alone. Uh, So, this is telling me something very, very pronounced. It says that we not only have an acute uh, vulnerability among elderly people, but it's also an acute vulnerability among elderly people in a certain type of scenario, a certain type of facility. Uh, so that tells me you need a policy response targeting and figuring out a way uh, to lessen the susceptibility of nursing homes, and that could be that, maybe that could include uh, uh, you have tighter restrictions on entry and exit into them, maybe it could include spreading out or dispersing the population of the nursing home. A big one that's come up, a lot of states adopted these, these bizarre policies that required nursing homes to readmit COVID patients. And they end up being carriers that bring it into an otherwise secure facility. And next thing you know, uh, half of the residents have, have contracted the disease. So there's all sorts of things that could have been done for nursing home, homes and still should be done, but were basically omitted from this, this general top-down, one-size-fits-all approach that we took back in March. Uh, so, and then the final complication of this, you know, we talked about the Neil Ferguson Imperial College model which is all premised upon agent-based interactions as a simulation model in the general population. It's uh, what happens if we do business as usual and people contact five people in the course of their, their day going to work and school and stuff, then we close down work, we close down school, maybe that reduces to two and that limits the, uh, uh, the number of interactions. So it's, it's, it's a sophisticated model, but it's a general population model. You go back to the 2005 paper where they first developed this model and they say quite explicitly, we do not account for group residences such as nursing homes, prisons, and care facilities. So the model that we're, we based all of this policy response on, this uh, the sophisticated uh, agent-based simulation for the general population, did not even account for the one area that's turned out to be far and away the single biggest cause of COVID deaths. Uh, another way of saying that is the model uh, that Neil Ferguson and Imperial College used, it predicted a certain type of deaths, but they are not the types of deaths that we are actually seeing. Uh, so that tells me maybe we need to step back and reevaluate even the, even the core uh, empirical basis that we made these decisions on and, uh, and taking new knowledge, uh, abandon lockdowns entirely, and look to a more focused policy that looks at nursing homes, that, that, that deals with the nursing home problem.
0: Right. And the nursing home problem is a very is a very sad one because it does it yeah. seems that nobody in the Western world has, has been able to deal with that correctly. Well, right? exactly. So Sweden, you know, I think the response to Sweden has been very measured, but they did a bad job with nursing homes. With and nursing homes. In the UK, in Germany, like pretty much every country outside of Asia, where I don't think they have this the system of nursing homes, where parents right? Parents like right. maybe that somehow, I don't know. It's hard to exactly understand why the, the, the death rate in, in Asia was not as, as as bad as in the Western world, but it's just like a a, a tragic um, but but that tells us about the different type of response moving forward here exactly, uh, for, exactly. For, for sure and and um so you you also talked about, about one thing that you talked about wrote about is is about the idea going back to do Ferguson unfortunately is claiming victory somehow claiming the the treatment effect that, right that we like to call of of the lockdown so so some folks will go out there and say the lockdown saved 3.1 million people. I think that was the right. last shot of, of the nature sort of, I wouldn't call it a paper. It could be like blog that was posted. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, um, how do we think about that? Yeah, so, so this is a major
1: problem with the epidemiology literature. And this is something that I love as a social scientist, just for an intellectual exercise to look at this stuff, uh, even though the implications are very profound. So one of the great problems of empirical social sciences, you know, as you referred to, is inferring causality, detecting causality. It's really easy to uh, figure out that two things correlate with each other, two trends correlate, but uh, but proving that one caused the other is uh, a a statistical conundrum. This is something that uh, social scientists have been working on for uh, millennia, basically. If you figure out how do you track, uh, uh. whether one variable causes the other to happen. How do you separate these two things? And the statistical tools that we have for inferring these are very sophisticated, but they're also uh, relatively in their infancy. Uh, This is something that emerged basically in the late 20th, early 21st century, uh, the most advanced causal inference techniques that we have. And they're very prominent in political science and economics. uh, Some of the physical sciences as tools that are just now starting to be explored. But if you look at the epidemiology literature, it's almost non-existent. They aren't using causal inference. Uh, So that that uh, study, if you want to call it a blog post uh, in nature, what they did is they took their own model, the Imperial College model, and they projected the number of deaths that they assumed would happen without the lockdowns, and then they just take they do a subtraction exercise. They take the difference between that and the actual deaths we have, and they say, aha, we saved 3 million people, or we saved 200,000 people here and there. Uh, that's not social science. That's uh, uh, about the same level of sophistication as when Donald Trump tweeted before March 2020 and says, the stock market's rising, therefore I caused it. Uh, so that, that, that's the problem. And I see this as a major deficiency of the uh, epidemiology literature right now. So I'm working on a, a, a separate paper. It's kind of a lit review of all the studies that claim to prove the lockdown effectiveness to see if they have a causal inference mechanism in there. Do they use difference in difference? Uh, do they go even a little more sophisticated, use like a synthetic control to create a counterfactual that they can judge something against. And very, very few papers have uh, even awareness of that. Uh, and the ones that do, I think there have been two two or three synthetic control studies so far. One was on Sweden, and its conclusion was that the lockdowns did not work, they were ineffective. Uh, the counterfactual was no different than what uh, Sweden happened. The other was on Wisconsin that looked at when the date, when the
0: Wisconsin's- oh, a sharp, There was a sharp discontinuity of yeah. the policy. Yeah,
1: so you've got a, a treatment effect on an exact date, easy to isolate. Uh, we can see if there's a spike in, in in deaths afterwards. And quite the opposite, Wisconsin's been on a, on a continuous downward trend since then. So the only studies that have really looked at this that have robust causal inferences are coming up with the exact opposite conclusion from these mathematical models that just assume by subtracting reality from their own
0: projections that they must have caused it. And the other thing missing in all those is going to be also the fact that it's not enough to look at at a point in time. Because even if the lockdown, even if I give you the lockdown somehow, stop all disease spread, well, it gets reintroduced. And later on, you know, so, 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 so the only way that I think lockdown could effectively Get rid of 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 that would be by locking down entirely without any interactions and two of acts vac- an effective vaccine is put in place exactly exactly which is which, which just which is, which is insane not. that's impl- implausible yeah yeah so I think once you look over a period of a year or or, or the yeah. cycle of the disease right you will, that's when I think you're going to be able to say something more clear about let's say the Sweden experiment versus the other Scandinavian countries for example okay. uh, or or, or but anyway but that, that's that's definitely not yet available but but it's it's unfortunate how how the claims are too quick, because I think they're coming in and trying to justify new lockdowns coming about, right? Yeah. So, so you know, they're using that information, to say, see, Texas should lock down right now, uh, yeah. because that's the only way to save lives.
1: It's like the, this bizarre default position that we always go to the lockdowns. Uh, so, and here's another discovery that, the, that just kind of shocked me. This was a, a big aha moment when working in some of this literature, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an economic historian by background and training, uh, I like to look at past events to compare to, and that's both uh, hundreds of years ago or recent history, and I found this paper uh, that came from uh, four leading epidemiologists at Johns Hopkins University. It was published in 2006, and this was in the midst of uh, some of the influenza discussions that were happening around them. They were also really concerned about bioterrorism, uh, so like a, an outbreak of uh, al-Qaeda, uh, using chemical or, or biological agents to cause a, an attack. Uh, so this is a big, big point of attention. But they asked the Johns Hopkins team, uh, what are the policy interventions? And this paper that summarized basically all the literature uh, had a stunning conclusion in it. It said that wide scale, what they called were quarantines or what we'd call lockdowns now. Uh, so the language has shifted, though. They said wide scale, society wide quarantines or lockdowns should be taken out of consideration entirely because there's no evidence that they work this is all just theoretical models Uh, we don't have any clear cases from past pandemics there's no uh, natural experiment that has shown these things are justified it's all just existing in this theoretical world of epidemiology models that have just assumed it to be the case Uh, so this is kind of like a stunning re- uh, revelation. It shows that not only are, are uh, critics of the lockdown existing outside of the uh, uh, the field of medicine and epidemiology, there are internal critics to epidemiology who have been saying uh, quite consistently for some time that uh, we don't really know what we're doing here when we're enacting these policies. And yet you have a uh, political culture, a media culture, basically public choice effects. What does the media like to do? It's the same thing that happens? Y'all are in Texas, you know hurricanes on the Gulf Coast. What happens whenever there's a hurricane in the Gulf? CNN and the whole news crew descends on the coast and are they're standing out in the, in, in the middle of the storm trying to, to predict the disaster. Uh, media is very, very susceptible to hype. It's very susceptible to alarmist claims and lockdowns are very uh, synchronized to addressing alarmist claims. So they, they, they tend to get uh, preferenced in the public uh, discussion by uh, uh, reporters, uh, news crews, that are all about showing the flashy shot of the disaster happening, and not really interested in the measured policy discussion that needs to take place to deal with something like this.
0: So, so let's start to talk a little bit about, speculate, I guess, on, on why. Why is it that, that I feel that our elites fail us miserably because, yeah. they, they, you know, if the media is doing what they do, which is like, yeah, if you bleed elites, right, that's what they do. Um, and that's always been unfortunate. It's not a new phenomenon. I think maybe now we like to talk about social media being like a, 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 a sort of potentializing more that's sort of like filling the flames that, 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 that media likes to, to, to look for clickbaits and so on. But that's definitely a new phenomenon with social media. But the, 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 but the elites typically, are more into measured responses for sure, sure. The situation of crisis and, and 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 you know other any other measure political any other uh, public policy choice. So what happened? What, why it different here? Why why? And, you know, I would blame our field as well. Us academics, economists, I think, were incredibly silent at first. They did a lot of good work after in terms of like, oh, we can adapt. Look, you know, economists are better modelers than epidemiologists. So can <laughs> quickly write models. They're like, see, actually, this is a little weird. Uh, but the first time, in the, in the beginning, when lockdowns were being considered, it was silent. There was silence, there was silence right. across, the academia, across the elites, and, and whether they were Republican governors or, or Democratic governors, they locked everybody down. I think the one right. government stood out, which is the South Carolina government. Right, right. Yeah, there are exactly. very few. <laughs> so, so why? How is that? How do we get
1: there? Yeah, so I, I keep going back to, uh, in, in my mind, we look across both the physical and social sciences. We have been dealing with, uh, you know, something that's referred to as the replication crisis in data for decades. This is a well-known phenomenon. that exists in in economics, biology, physics, uh, you name it. And this is the problem of of, uh, elites, intellectual elites in the academy, publish work, including in top journals, that uh, other scholars come back and they just try to replicate it, try to run the same test. And they find out based on the available information, it can't be done. Uh, and there's been very little correction that's taken place on that. Uh, I think this is a problem across multiple fields, but uh, it really kind of burst into the open at the outset of the COVID crisis because everyone was like, okay, well, this is the epidemiologist's turf. We'll defer to them. Uh, we'll let them uh, call the shots early on, and we're going to sit back. We're going to, uh, uh, to to wait to weigh in. Uh, and part of that's uh, that, there, there's some humility built into that, but the, but the problem here is when you have epidemiology, it turns out to also be afflicted by a replication crisis of its own, also be afflicted by bad data of its own. Uh, that basically just let it run wild with some, uh, some really suspect work. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I hate to keep harping on the, uh, the Imperial College model, but, uh, but, you know, it's the major model that's driving uh, world decisions. It, it, it's the one that other countries are replicating and it turns out to just be a bad model just be very ill suited uh, for the, uh, the the situation that we encountered. And yet there was like this deference that we have to give it over to the epidemiologists uh, to run with it. Uh, complicate that even further, uh, it, it, we, we've seen this in the subsequent months, is there's almost been like a, a self-inflicted discrediting of the science by all these changing standards, the changing goalposts we were talking about, even anything as simple as advice, you know, we heard the other day, Anthony Fauci uh, basically admitted that the government lied about mask recommendations back in March, uh, February and March. They were discouraging people from uh, buying masks, not because uh, that was what the, the medicine said, but they were trying to preserve the mask supply for the hospitals. And now we saying, oh, now we, we have enough masks so we can reverse courses. That may be some sort of a political, a shrewd political trick. It does not help the condition of science in the public's mind. Uh, It undermines uh, the respect and trust that we were supposed to place in in people that are exercising expertise. And we see this up and down the epidemiology profession. The other one that's come out uh, was when we had the Black Lives Matter protests uh, pop up. And I think there are some some very legitimate causes that people are protesting here. That the murder of George Floyd is horrific. And I think uh, almost all Americans were in agreement that it was horrific. Uh, It it reflects a real serious substantive problem with our police culture uh, that I support addressing that I think most people, most reasonable people, think that we need some sort of solution to. Uh, Nonetheless, those protests burst out into the open in kind of an uncontrolled way. They kind of happened uh, in defiance of the lockdowns and very unexpectedly, it's a spontaneous emergence. Well, what did the epidemiologist do in response to that? The very same people who were scolding and finger wagging at uh, just everyday life actions of going to your barber shop or going out to the store in public only two weeks prior uh, changed their tune. They became uh, political messengers rather than scientific messengers, and started carving out all of these like really tendentious excuses of why the current wave of protests was not as vulnerable to uh, to COVID as uh, as we had all been just two weeks prior. Uh, so they sent a very inconsistent message there, even to the point where some of the most prominent epidemiologists at uh, like University of Washington and uh, Yale University there were two very pronounced outspoken epidemiologists that had been up until just a few days before the Black Lives Matter protests broke out, uh, uh, scolding people for violating the lockdown, for going out in public. Uh, This is a time of of public health crisis and we must all do our part, but they politically sympathized with the uh, Black Lives Matter protests. So just in the course of a couple of days, they completely flipped their message. Uh, And I, you know, I'm not judging sympathizing with Black Lives Matter as a protest cause. That's valid, uh, but I, I would judge a scientific expert who is predicating his or her own advice on whether we should shelter in place, uh, strictly on whether they politically agree with the reason to violate the shelter in place or not.
0: And, and, and again, like the, the interesting part of this, like the, the, the movement being very critical of the way we enforce rules. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. the movement that before weeks prior to we say, you know what, well, let's have these rules that have to be enforced by police. <laughs> right,
1: right, right. Yeah, and you saw that. So before George Floyd, there was a, another kind of viral video that circulated, and it was of an African-American man on a bus in Philadelphia and he wasn't wearing a mask, even though there was no no rule in place that said he had to wear a mask, but some uh, transit police decided, no, you're not wearing a mask, you need to go, and they were dragging the guy off the bus and slamming him to the ground. It's horrific to watch. And you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, this is actually the same problem, and two weeks ago, you all you epidemiologists were okay with this type of enforcement, and now you're saying that you recognize the problem? That, that's, that's telling me that... Uh, uh, your message as a, a scientific community is not rooted in science at all.
0: So uh, let's wrap up by, 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 by again uh, speculating a bit by the future here. Yeah. Um, so we, it seems to me that that this episode is going to have a lot of uh, uh, consequences to a lot of our institutions and yes, and, you know, there's there's the obvious financial consequences that all of us are going to suffer. And universities are in dire trouble. I see. I see uh, one of your books. Crackers in the ivory tower in the back. I I, I really enjoyed the book, even though it's very critical of my business, right? (laughs) Justifiably (laughs) critical of my business. So, so that that, that's great. There'll be a lot of uh, uh, adjustments and things that we're gonna have to do, and and. But I think the two institutions that I'm thinking about is is science, generally speaking, not necessarily through Mm -hmm. university, but just science, uh, generally speaking, and and governments. The fact that we all of a sudden realize that. Safeguards that we had about about dictatorial powers, the government, you know, that we right. don't allow right. governments to have, they had it by just calling an emergency. Right. Uh, call an emergency, apparently, can put me in house arrest for three weeks, three months. It's yeah. like, basically, a, a suspension of our democracy, effectively. Effectively, right? And and uh, uh, so policies with enormous consequences. They were not legislated. They were just done oh. by fiat by fifty executives uh, around the country. Yeah. Uh, so I. I, I you know those two things. I think are are, are going to have a, a huge rediscussion about it. So so how, how do you see that playing out? What's what's your well? And again,
1: it taps into uh, the extent to which scientific expertise has engaged this self-inflicted wound. Uh, they've discredited themselves. It's almost like the old story about the boy who cried wolf. Uh, the next time when the wolf actually comes, uh, people are going to be much more uh, distrusting of that level of expertise, because I think I think it's pretty clear now that uh, uh, the scientific uh, advisors as well as the politicians overplayed their card. They overreacted with a general sweeping policy nationwide uh, when it should have been a much more targeted policy around nursing homes and other things that we can maybe effectively control. Uh, so I see a lot of mistrust emerging in the future to, uh, to invocations of scientific expertise as a basis of emergency, and that can have uh, problems in both directions. It can have uh, problems in, uh, in both undermining future attempts to, uh, uh, to enact similar policies, but it can also make people more skeptical and more distrustful when an actual emergency does happen, uh, a much more severe, whether it's a pandemic or natural disaster. Uh, it's it, it, they've they've kind of painted themselves into a corner now, where their credibility is on the line, and and people really don't know where to go to to trust it. Uh, and, and then the second thing, and this is what really alarms me, is that um, I think some of the way that uh, the protests to the both uh, uh, both in Black Lives Matter and the lockdowns themselves have played out uh, have unfortunately incentivized uh, people of of authoritarian stripe on both the far left and the far right to really enter into the political dialogue. Uh, These are people that are are, uh, reacting to heavy handed enforcement uh, across a multitude of policies, but uh, they're reacting in such ways of either saying, well, we need the police to crack down even harder, or uh, we need to engage in violence to topple uh, the system or topple, Uh, types of government that we don't like uh those types of reactions i think are fundamentally authoritarian and premised on extremism and i think uh, very unfortunately uh the way that this whole thing was played out it's almost like uh the politicians thought that they could uh Carefully measure and implement a lockdown and keep extending it, extending, it, extending it, and there'd be no consequences uh, that uh, we, we get to the point where uh, we, we very lightly and in a managed way remove it. Well, that's not playing out at all. Uh, people are, are uh, basically discarding the lockdowns on themselves because the, uh, they, they were extended far beyond what people were willing to countenance. And now it's kind of a chaotic situation. Uh, uh, structure and response, and that chaos has unfortunately opened the door to some very ugly authoritarian tendencies
0: one of the one of the things that from the very beginning, I think one of the Swedish epidemiologists uh, uh, if you ever watch some of the interviews of their interviews they, I recommend because they were they were uh, very level headed from the very beginning, and one yeah. of the things that these old gentlemen said a couple of times is that i don 't understand what 's the plan that any of these countries that are locking down have to unwind the lockdown. Exactly, exactly. There's no data that will allow them to see, like, okay, now we can open it up because there'll be no data unless a vaccine comes about. And, and I think, again, the, the, the sort of uh, uh, beyond the data on the scientific side, the aspect of like social interactions and unrest that might create, maybe create it. Like, what is the plan? What is the, how do you want, you want to do this? It's going to be very difficult. And we're seeing that not only here, but pretty much everywhere, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for this. Thanks for all, all the writing you do on, on, on lots of topics. I think in particular it's been very useful to read, read your columns in the past uh, a few months. And, and hope to see you in Texas at some point, not in the so distant future. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thanks again. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs.